the U.S. war machine from Iraq to Korea to the Philippines. Our sons and our daughters go to war, lose their lives, and those who don't lose their lives lose their minds, and those who don't lose their minds lose their limbs, and then they come home to be homeless. We must stand up and fight back. For a hundred years, we've been trying to avoid a national health insurance. We keep taking the path of what one of the historians calls more palatable approaches, and all of them have failed. So I think it's time for us to stop that strategy and just say, we need a national health insurance. There's 400 billionaires that will get a bigger tax cut than most of these social programs combined. That's where the money is going to. They're taking it from all of us to give it to their billionaire friends Hurricane Irma set a record for the most intense storm in long duration anywhere on Earth. Hurricane Maria went from a Category 1 to a Category 5 in about half a day. Why? Because our planet, and hence our oceans, are warming. Too few hold the power. Too many are powerless. Too few live in luxury. Too many live in distress. Too few hold the power. Too many are powerless. Too few live in luxury. Too many live in distress. Workers' rights are under attack. What do we do? Stand up, fight back. Workers' rights are under attack. What do we do? Stand up, fight back. Human rights are under attack. What do we do? Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, voices of resistance and alternative news from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Everum, here with our final jam-packed show for 2017, extended conversations about the year, the notorious 017, with media critic Janine Jackson and with our geopolitical analyst Gerald Horn. But first, our headlines and a focus on some positive good news. Our headlines will start with a note sent from Winona Howder, director of the national organization Food and Water Watch. She writes, despite the challenges we face this year, I am proud to celebrate the victories that you and thousands of others across the country have made possible as we fight for a world where everyone has access to safe food, clean water and a livable planet. One, we banned fracking in Maryland. Two, we kept water public in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Food and Water Action members and partners in Atlantic City faced off against Chris Christie in an epic battle to keep their water public, and they won. Privatizing public utilities like water can be a huge scam, interfering with the human right to clean, safe, and affordable water. We were proud to stand with Atlantic City, fighting tooth and nail to keep their water public. Three, we stopped the TPP, or the Trans-Pacific Partnership Treaty. Years of relentless work from a mighty coalition of environmental, labor, health, and community organizations led to a win against big corporate money and the politicians in their pockets. Four, we beat Nestle again. Nestle has spent years trying to exploit water resources in the Northwest. But this year, officials in Goldendale, Washington, told Nestle that it wasn't welcome, thanks to a tenacious, quick organizing from the town. And to make the win even sweeter, this October, Oregon Governor Kate Brown made moves that will make it nearly impossible for Nestle to bottle in the Columbia River Gorge. Five, we took Donald Trump to court. 
We're using every tool in the toolbox to hold this corrupt administration accountable, and that includes taking legal action. Our team filed a lawsuit in federal court to stop Trump's massive infrastructure scam, which would mean water rate increases, job losses, and lack of accountability. Six, we went beyond banning fracking in New York by stopping fossil fuel infrastructure, too. The euphoria of banning fracking in New York will never be forgotten, but we knew it wasn't enough. This year, we stopped the Northern Access Pipeline, which would have threatened nearly 100 miles of streams and wetlands. And we helped pass a bill with stronger regulations on transporting fracked oil in the Hudson River. Seven, we took down dirty energy in California. This year, with our friends, we blocked dirty power plants. Eight, we made real progress in the fight against factory farms. Factory farms make us sick. They place public health and our food supply at risk, pollute the environment and our drinking water, and wreck rural communities, all the while increasing corporate control over our food system. Nine, we stopped the first fracking well in Illinois. And number 10, we helped introduce the strongest climate justice bill ever. The Off Fossil Fuels for a Better Future Act, the Off Act, is a comprehensive roadmap to ethically getting us to 100% renewable energy by 2035. Introduced by Representative Tulsi Gabbard, this bill promises a just transition to renewable energy and into fossil fuels without risking job loss and a plan to make sure that racial and economic justice is a priority throughout the entire system. Kudos to Food and Water Watch for compiling and sending that good news for 2017. Now, from progressive researchers at the Transnational Institute and Common Dreams, a few victories abroad. Once, El Salvador bans mining. In a classic David and Goliath tale, the small Central American state took on a vast Canadian transnational corporation, which I think we've mentioned before on the ground, to become the first country in the world to ban metals mining. Farmer communities led the struggle when they came together in 2004 to save the Lempa River watershed. They built a national coalition in the face of massive repression, including the assassination of several activists, formed alliances internationally, took on the Canadian corporation Oceana Gold, and finally secured a mining ban in March of this year. Number two on our list, French law on multinationals. At a time when corporate power has become seemingly impregnable, French campaigners have shown that transnational corporations can be defeated. In a four-year campaign, they mobilized for a new law approved in March 2017, which recognizes the responsibility of parent companies for human rights violations committed by subsidiaries, subcontractors, and providers. The new law was passed in the face of considerable corporate opposition and is a major step forward in the fight against impunity of transnational corporations, addressing the legal complexity of their supply chains that has made it so difficult for affected communities to get justice. The law has also given a boost to ongoing efforts to create an international binding treaty on transnational corporations at the United Nations. And uprisings in Brazil and in India. Brazil's biggest ever general strike occurred when 35 million people from Brazil's largest unions and popular movements took to the streets to oppose labor and pension reforms 
imposed by the deeply unpopular Temur government that won power through a coup. The general strike succeeded in bringing Brazil's biggest cities like Sao Paulo, Rio de Janeiro, Porto Alegre, and Brasilia to a halt and was evidence of growing popular opposition to Temur. Now, in India, in November, tens of thousands of peasants and rural laborers from 20 states representing more than 180 peasant organizations gathered in Delhi for an unprecedented show of strength against the reactionary Modi government. Facing rising production costs, increased drought, and falling incomes, the farmers demanded debt relief, better prices, and effective crop insurance schemes. While the government did not immediately respond to their key demands, the United Platform is likely to have an impact as it takes its campaign across the country in 2018 and 2019. And the last good news from abroad, Momentum, a grassroots movement in the UK, defied the odds and brought a left candidate, Jeremy Corbyn, close to government. Focusing on door-to-door conversations and a sophisticated social media campaign, they substantially increased Labour's vote in the general elections and almost ended the ruling Conservative Party's majority. The movement momentum made up of 30,000 active members showed how a mobilized grassroots operation could defy massive media hostility and win seats. The movement has made the Labour Party the biggest membership party in Europe with a platform committed to bringing privatized services back under public ownership abolishing university tuition fees, and ending fracking. Momentum is now widely recognized as the most vibrant part of the party and is advocating greater participation in the party's decision-making. We'll link to the complete list by researchers at the Transnational Institute on our website. And our final good news headline, one closer to home here in D.C., from Dominic Molden of the Racial and Economic Justice Organization 1DC, which just purchased a building to house its Black Workers and Wellness Center at 2500 Martin Luther King Boulevard in Southeast DC. This building, sold to 1DC by the United Black Fund, is a space where Black workers can work for racial and economic justice in the city by participating in trainings on cooperative business models, learning about time banking, educating each other on the intersections of labor and racism, and through a relationship with the labor union LIUNA, get connected to living wage construction jobs. The center will continue to offer its core popular education and job training programming while expanding its offerings to include Know Your Rights trainings, the incubation of worker-owned cooperatives, and a host of wellness classes such as yoga and nutrition. And those are our good news headlines for 2017. When we come back, fake news, half-baked news, breaking news, people trying to make news with Janine Jackson. Stay with us.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, from the coining of the term fake news to the new McCarthyism here in D.C., to coverage of protests for racial justice by NFL players, news organizations, mass media, and culture has remained central to all that has occurred in 2017. And joining us from New York to help us sort out this year in media is on-the-ground contributor Janine Jackson, host of Counterspin and director of FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. Welcome to our last segment for this year, Janine. I'm happy to be here as always. Well, it's been quite a ride, but let's jump right in. When you look at all that has occurred this year, what are your top media and culture stories? Well, in thinking about this, Esther, I really come up with, I mean, so much happened. It's a, it was a whirlwind, but I, a theme that keeps coming back to me is really state violence against black and brown people. I just did a segment on the Muslim ban, the latest version of the Muslim ban, such a cruel piece of policy. And now we have the Supreme Court saying that it can be fully implemented, even though lower courts are still trying to decide whether it's constitutional. And I was talking with uh, Suman Raghunathan from a South Asian social justice group, SALT, about how the hatred against and hate crimes against Muslims and people of color and Asian and Arab Americans is at levels like it was after September 11th. And yet media are kind of not doing it justice, you know, I would say. And with the Muslim ban in particular, even outlets that called it a Muslim ban back in January, I guess, when it was first announced, now they're kind of like, oh, it's a travel ban. You know, they're sort of blanding things out a bit, like they're falling for the administration's line that it's not really about bias. It's not really about discrimination, even as Trump, of course, gives the lie to that every time he opens his mouth, you know. That then made me think back, Esther, to an interview in the middle of the year with Mizui Ezeki from the Immigrant Defense Project, where we were talking about just the idea of criminalizing immigrants in this case, and we especially, of course, immigrants of color, and the way that media kind of played into that by playing into this frame of, you know, Trump said he was only going to deport bad immigrants, but he's deporting good immigrants, you know, and this kind of, this weird lens in which we decide that there are some communities that get looked at through this lens of criminality, you know, that, that, that have this suspicion of like, does he deserve to be here? Does she deserve to be here? And the way media can kind of play into that. And then one other thing that I, it sort of led me to this train of thought and looking back over the year was, you know, well, what's the other side of that? You know, what are some other stories? Because my gosh, other examples, you know, abandoning Puerto Rico, you know, that's also to me represents, you know, state violence against people of color, you know, um, encouraging electoral chaos in in Honduras, you know, under this drug war banner, you know, all these things seemed connected to me. But Mm. in terms of the other side, I did this story, which I'll never forget about Mama's bailout day, which I'm sure you remember, you know, which involved um, people, you know, because this idea of the state controlling black people and black bodies is, of course, age old, but so is the resistance, you know. And this was this segment about this organizing effort around Mother's Day this year in which, as we know, there are lots and lots of people who are in jail 
only because they cannot afford to pay bail. You know, they literally are in jail because they are too poor to pay their way out because of this system that we have. And this was an, an organizing effort where folks just pulled together their money and bailed women out, you know, bailed mm-hmm. some mothers out for Mother's Day. So that was the loop that ran through the year for me. So many things happened. There's so many ways to look at it. But I was really struck by the increasing prevalence and the kind of the way media play a role in legitimizing state violence, state sanctioned violence against us, against people of color. That kind of dovetails into one of my pieces, and that's the coverage of the NFL protests against racial injustice. And we had this extraordinary thing happen this year where on a very big stage in terms of something that the average American taps into every week, which is just a football game. We had a continuation of the protest started by former San Francisco quarterback Colin Kaepernick against the killing with impunity by the police of black people and people of color in particular. And so players like Michael Bennett continued the protests. There was a very strong showing in the preseason and the beginning of the season. And this happened right after the attacks, the racist attacks in Charlottesville, Virginia in August of uh, this year. And it was a tremendous response, uh, basically to support the fact that Colin Kaepernick could not get a job, that NFL uh, owners seemingly had colluded. (laughs) That's that's a year for that word, right? In not offering him employment, you know, as many of their teams suffered with subpar play, yet this quarterback could not get a job holding a clipboard. And so not only did the protest continue, but the coverage of it was very interesting because the president of the country, Donald Trump, came out against these players protesting for racial justice and twisted their message to say that it was anti-flag and anti-military, anti-veteran when it wasn't. And even if it was, there's nothing wrong. We have a constitutional right to protest war (laughs) to protest the flag, but that wasn't what it was about. Right. And it was very interesting that I think the media, just like they did during his uh, presidential campaign, covered his statements very uncritically, did not unpack his statements, let him kind of broadcast this lie and this mismessage across the country and basically play into the hands of racists, people who talked about, you know, the players are are lucky that they're not shot in the head, encouraging a violence against these players. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I mean, I would say media kind of, they covered it as kind of like a back and forth, you know, between Trump and the protesters. So you have like a debate in which flat out racism is one of the legitimate poles of the debate, you know, and it was a very, I I totally agree that it was a very thin approach. And another thing that we saw was the way media cover often protests, in this case, I think they were prepared to ignore it. News media, sports media, of course, couldn't avoid it. And we're, we're talking about it. But until it got bigger, and then they tried to kind of co-opt it. They kind of did the thing they do with Martin Luther King, you know, where it was like, oh, yeah, don't we all agree with that? Yeah, racial justice, sure, we're all, we're all down with that, you know. Um, but they didn't really, just as you say, go into the actual underlying issue that Kaepernick was trying to draw attention to, which was state-sanctioned, in this case, police violence and murder of black people, you know. So they kind of covered the protest, 
as a protest and the celebrity angle was big, but they didn't do what was being demanded, what was being called for, which is get into the urgency and the meaning and the injustice that was meant to be the focus. And then I had two other things. I had number one, the year starting out with this truly Orwellian state of news and news coverage from both sides, you know, politicians here in Washington had their part. We started out with Kellyanne Conway, uh, one of Trump's aides, with her famous declaration about alternative facts <laughs> being available about Trump's inauguration. And on the other side, an almost obsessive need to cover and blame Russia for everything, you know, rather than focus on issues like the tax bill, rather than the gutting of net neutrality, you know, which are deeply going to hurt the American people. So, I really see just kind of this her Orwellian, you know, it's not 1984, it's 2017. So maybe we can change the year for the novel to 2017. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. No. And it, and it, I think it's very, it adds to the overwhelm, you know, that we would be feeling anyway with just what's actually happening, you know, with just the mm -hmm. policies that this White House is inflicting on us, even without this thing of having media just wholesale, you know, also at the beginning of the year, we were having outlets say, well, we don't, we can't say that Trump is lying, you know, lie is not a term that we can use, you know, now, now <laughs> that they've, they've, you know, if you're not going to use it now, when are you ever going to use it, you know, now, and we have seen some some shifting in that but i i agree it gets uh we have journalists to, it, the way i think of it is what would we be asking from journalists right now you know and the stepping up that would be required to really fight for free expression under this administration in particular is just it just seems so far beyond them you saying orwellian i'm the word is overused i guess but i mean it's every day there's a new example of it and as you say where we have these things like this tax bill, which is this huge, you know, class war, basically, action, this huge transfer of wealth from the poor to the already wealthy. And we have, you know, nominally liberal outlets like MSNBC pushing it down in the in the headlines under the latest non-thing in the Russia scandal, you know, which, you know, okay, right. that's absolutely important, but my God, <laughs> you know, um, this, this really should, is where our eyes should be at. So I guess, I, I guess what I think of Esther is not, it's not just what they're doing, it's what they should be doing and are not. And these are special times that call for brave, independent journalism. And that's why you really can only look to independent journalism, community media, social media for not just the perspectives, but for the actual news that we need to live in 2017. I was going to have as my last item for the year, you know, this kind of ramping up of a dangerous narrowing of available news and information and facts, <laughs> a narrowing of the diversity of voices, and again, of facts, uh, forcing RT to register as a foreign agent and then stripping them of press credentials here in D.C., gutting of net neutrality, something that didn't get a lot of attention, but Google and Facebook and Twitter joining in on the attack on RT. And then certain changes in algorithms uh, by Google and Facebook in particular that resulted in a huge decrease in traffic to progressive news sites. So just under that whole banner of a narrowing of available news and information is very 
it's a very dangerous time. But I would say being out at the FCC at the big rally for net neutrality was just very encouraging to me. I saw community stations from around the country came, including some that have picked up on the ground. I met the people from Philly Cam in Philadelphia, and they have us on the air on Mondays at 11 a.m. Shout out to Philly Cam. (laughs) So, yeah, I just realized that, you know, we are just an important part of, you know, matter, no matter how humble, no, no matter how much we're struggling, Pacifica's in this mammoth struggle right now, but we have to keep going. We have to really be the fourth estate. If they're not going to be the fourth estate, which is a power that challenges power, that challenges government, that challenges corporations, then we have to be that. You know, they, they don't, if, if corporate media doesn't want to step up to the plate in any humble way we can, we have to step up to the plate. And I thank you for being my comrade here in independent media and having these conversations with me this year and all the cultural items that we've talked about. Um, there's actually a, a movie out that called The Post that talks about the decision to publish the Pentagon Papers back in the 1960s and the kind of centers around Daniel Ellsberg's decision to, you know, get those papers and leak them to newspapers. And it really talks about these same issues. Like at what point the fourth estate, the press is going to challenge power, challenge wrongdoing by power, as opposed to just kind of be quiet or be co-opted by power. So... Well, and speaking of movies, let's add our last culture item for this year. We've been trying to add in some little culture at the end of our media every week. So when you look at 2017, what's the cultural note that you want to mention? Well, it goes back to the beginning of the year, but I have to say I'm still thinking about Get Out, about that movie. I really think it was such a cultural phenomenon to put at the center of a film, really, the and to convey the visceral feelings of being black in the United States in 2017. You know, the the fear and the anger and the sorrow and the love um, and the way the past is present. And I, I remember, you know, the thing where at the end of the movie where, you know, our man is in danger and we see a, a police car coming. And the fact that nobody in the movie theater thought, oh, good, the cops are coming. That means he's safe. You know, you know, right. um, no, nobody felt that. That is, I think that is just huge culturally for the United States. And it conveyed that feeling, I want to say, more compellingly than a movie like Detroit, you know, that was trying to say something like that more earnestly, you know. So I keep coming it back to Get Out, which I think was not just a powerful film, but really the fact that it was so embraced, I'm, I'm going to go with that as a feeling that folks are at least wanting to grapple with some of the stuff this country needs to grapple with. Yeah, I would de- definitely have to endorse that as kind of like the drama of the year for me. I think that the Golden Globes uh, nominated it in the category of comedy or musical or something. But I want to lift up a documentary that just came out, The Rape of Reese Taylor. 
And I want to raise it up because it's going back to this book that's been haunting me for many years now, At the Dark End of the Street by Daniel McGuire. And this movie is inspired by her book. And this book tells about the horrific gang rape of a black sharecropper by a group of white young men in 1944 in Alabama. And it also talks about how the investigator for this rape was Rosa Parks. And this is a, f- a full 10, 12 years before the Montgomery bus boycott where Rosa Parks became so well known. And she would go into these backwoods and investigate these cases. And they were you know, all over the place in the Jim Crow South. And then the movie just talks more about Reese Taylor, the life she lived after that. And to see this story not die, to be reborn on the big screen so that people can see it is really very important. I hope that people check that out because they may, it may not get a lot of notice in the big media. Well, I thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you again for, for having these conversations this year, Janine. I really appreciate it and look forward to continuing to fight the power in 2018. Absolutely. Absolutely. Onward. Onward. <laughs> okay. I've been speaking with Janine Jackson, host of Counterspin and Director of FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. Happy holidays, Janine. Happy New Year. Same to you, Esther. Take care. War in the mind over territory for the Dominion. Who will dominate the opinions, schisms, and isms, keeping us in forms of religion, conforming our vision to the world church's decision, trapped in a section, submitted to committee election, moral infection, epidemic lies and deception, insurrection of the highest possible order, distort, and I take recorders from hearing like underwater, beyond the borders, find ascending disorder, bound by the strategy of systemic depravity, heavy as gravity, head first in the cavity, without a bottom, a fate worse than Sodom. What's got him? Drunk off the spirits. Truth comes, we can't hear it. When you've been programmed to fear it. I had a vision. I was falling in indecision. Appalling. Calling religious a program on television. How can dominant wisdom be recognized in a system of antichrists and majority rules? Intelligent fools. PhDs in illusion. Masters of mass confusion. Bachelors of past delusion. Now who you choosing? The head of the tail. The bloodshed of the male or confidence in the veil. Conferences at Yale discussing doctrines of bail, causing people to fail, keeping the third in jail. His word is nailed, everything to the tree, severing all of me from all that I used to be. Formless and void, totally paranoid, enjoying darkness as Lord, keeping me from the sword. Blocked from mercy, bitter than Cersei, hungry and thirsty for good meat we would eat and still dine at the table of deceit. How incomplete, from confrontation to retreat, we belong to true enemies' defeat, destitute of necessity. Causing desperation to get the best of me. Punishment till there was nothing left of me. Realizing the unescapable death of me. No options in the valley of decision. The only doctrine, supernatural circumcision. Inwardly, only water can purge the heart from words to fiery darts. Thrown by the workers of the arts. Iniquity, shaping in. There's no escaping when. Your whole philosophy is paper thin. In vanity, the wide road is insanity. Could it be all of humanity? Scripture that, scripture that, the origin of man's heart is black. How can we show up for an invisible war? Preoccupied with a shadow, making love with a whore. Aching the sores, Babylon the great mystery. Mother of human history, system of social sorcery. Our present condition needs serious recognition. Where there's no repentance, there can be no remission. And that sentence, more serious than Vietnam. The atom bomb in Saddam and Minister Farrakhan. What's going on? What's the priority to you? 
by what authority do we do? The majority hasn't a clue. We've majored in curses, searched the chapters, checked the verses, recaptured the land, removed the mark from off our hands so we can stand in agreement with his command. Everything else is damn, let them with ears understand. <laughs> Everything else is damn, let them with ears understand. Said it's freedom time now. Yeah. It's freedom. Said it's freedom time now. It's freedom. I'ma be who I am. It's freedom time. Said it's freedom time. Everybody knows that they blinded. Everybody knows they perpetrated inside. Everybody knows that they're guilty as Resting on their conscience, eating their insides Get free, be who you're supposed to be Freedom, said it's freedom time now Freedom, said it's freedom time Freedom This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance and Alternative News from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam, and now we're going to wrap up our year-end special with a conversation with Gerald Horn, our geopolitical analyst, author, activist, and frequent commentator across the Pacifica Network. Well, Gerald, it's been quite a year. Last week, when I spoke to Christopher Chambers, professor at Georgetown, for the final segment of the F Word, I said kind of tongue-in-cheek that with so many changes happening, it's like we were doing an episode of the F Word every week (laughs) in terms of the complete control of the state by monopoly capital, which has certainly been the case this year. But when you look at 2017, what are your thoughts? My thoughts, number one, are about the resistance, uh, which began literally the day Donald J. Trump was inaugurated in January 2017 with the so-called J-20 protests, with the massive women's marches following within a day or so of his inauguration, with the marches around climate change, uh, which was a response to Mr. Trump seeking to pull the United States out of the Paris Climate Accord with regard to the protests of the Dreamers, the young people, mostly from Latin America, who were brought to this country without papers to no fault of their own, are now clamoring for an official status in this country. Uh, They occupied many congressional offices within the last few weeks and have helped to put their agenda in the forefront of Congress's agenda. At the same time, there are changes on the international front that we must not ignore. The rather difficult relationship the United States has initiated with the European Union, and particularly Germany, which led the foreign minister of Germany, uh, Sigmund Gabriel, to say that he sees this right-wing populist trend of Mr. Trump surviving Mr. Trump, and that necessitates Germany and the EU of forging a path that is not necessarily congruent with the path in the United States of America. The new role of China it continues to be in the passing lane. The authority and power of President Xi Jinping was consolidated the party Congress just a few months ago. 
And we also see the fact that the United States has not ceased in its attempt to destabilize Venezuela, to destabilize North Korea, to destabilize Iran. And the relationship with Russia is quite complicated. The recent national security strategy paper of Mr. Trump basically was a throwback to the Cold War. At the same time, Mr. Trump, in offhand remarks and in tweets, has suggested that he desires a more positive relation with Moscow. And so that will be something to watch in coming months. But I would say that despite Mr. Trump's massive attack on democracy and his moves towards what on the ground has correctly denoted as a fascist turn, perhaps the most disappointing aspect of 2017 has been the apparent inability of the black American community and the left in general to understand what has given rise to this fascist turn, to understand the theory behind what leads to a fascist turn. And that does not bode well, because one of the things that I have detected, particularly on the left, is to rationalize, if not justify, the massive white vote for Mr. Trump, 63 million in all, by either downplaying the working class component of that vote or somehow seeing it as a disguised left-wing vote. That is to say, these people would have voted for Bernie Sanders, but they voted for Mr. Trump instead. Well, I want to go back to your point about the resistance, and I also want to add to that list you had the anti-fascist demonstrations that began actually on J20 and continued on through the demonstrations in Charlottesville, Virginia, when anti-fascist demonstrators wanted to confront the fascist demonstrators, the uh, white supremacists, neo-Nazis that had gathered there to protest that town's decision to remove the statues of Confederate generals and other people who had participated in the Civil War to fight to you know, retain slavery in the United States. And I also would like to add to that the, I think, different tactics of the movement for black lives. Um, Thinking back to the Mama's Bailout Day back in May and in June, just the, the ways that people are being jailed for not having enough money to get themselves out of jail. And this is impacting poor people, uh, many women who wind up losing their children to the foster care system. And I just thought that the movement had uh, operated with um, some different um, sophisticated strategies this year. And I would add to that list what happened in Durham, North Carolina, when anti-Confederate protesters toppled a statue memorializing the so-called Confederate States of America. I would add to that list what happened when protesters put pressure on the city authorities in both Memphis and in New Orleans to remove those statues, albeit in the dead of night. The same thing happened in Baltimore. And needless to say, I would point to Charlottesville, August 2017. Not only the protests, but the reaction of Mr. Trump who sought to rationalize the activities of neo-Nazis and Klansmen, which led to a rift in the highest levels of this administration, noticeably Gary Cohn, his chief economic advisor, 
who reprimanded Mr. Trump and supposedly was then deprived of taking the position of being head of the Federal Reserve Bank of the United States of America, arguably the number two position in this country. So I think that the list of attainments and accomplishments of our movement are impressive and significant, but the fact remains that the Trump base is holding steady thus far. And as we speak in late December 2017, it's unclear if the Republicans will lose their grip on both the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. Well, speaking of Congress, of course, they just passed what many economists and observers call the largest transfer of wealth from the working class, middle class and the poor to the one percent in this country's history. And it's interesting that you say that it's not clear whether they will pay a political price for that. That's being hotly debated right now. But as we talk about this imperialism abroad and, you know, suppression, repression of of working and poor people at home, this certainly has to be considered in the mix. I think that the analysis of this massive transfer of wealth as represented by this recent tax bill is suggestive on many fronts. Uh, Number one, it's going to help to ignite a race to the bottom. That is to say, other countries will seek to replicate, if not surpass, the United States in cutting corporate taxes, uh, which will put corporations in the driver's seat more than they are today, as they can then cherry-pick different countries in which they should move to. And secondly, I think it leads to a comment about the 63 million strong Trump base and whether or not they will rebel as a result of this massive transfer of wealth. Once again, I think it would be simplistic to suggest that they will in mass, although I do expect some defections, because I think that the Trump base, when they look at Mr. Trump, they see his attempt to change the federal judiciary in a right-wing direction. They see his anti-immigrant posturing. They see his picking fights with affluent black people, particularly black athletes, and this heartens them, and it cheers them, and it may cause them to overlook the fact that they have less money in their pockets. I thought a telling episode took place a few weeks ago when Congress was debating the tax bill, this massive transfer of wealth from bottom to top. Mr. Trump all of a sudden sent out these Islamophobic tweets. And so in some ways, that represents, in a nutshell, what U.S. politics is all about. That is to say, the base gets racism and bigotry, and the 1% get tax cuts. And thus far, that has been a kind of winning combination for the GOP right. In addition to what Congress has done... In preparing for this segment, I just happened to see that the uh, DNC, the Democratic National Committee, put out basically a list of the ways that just one of Trump's appointees, Betsy DeVos, at education has impacted negatively public education and just not just public education on the K-12 through level, but 
also higher education. Another report came out recently just talking about all the ways that she is hurting college students. She reinstated hefty collection fees for some borrowers who had defaulted. Uh, the department started to take apart two major consumer protection rules. One of the rules is on gainful employment, which holds non-degree career education programs accountable when graduates have too much debt. And the other is on borrower defense, which allows student borrowers defrauded by institutions to get loan forgiveness. And then she tapped the chief executive of a private student loan company to run the federal government's trillion dollar financial aid operations. <laughs> so there's just so many ways, uh, you know, I haven't even gotten to the EPA and the beleaguered consumer financial protection bureau. There's just so many ways that the public treasurer, the public trust, the public property is being turned over to corporations. Needless to say, Mr. Trump himself is complicit. Recall his Trump University, which was one of his many scams, which led to a fine of about $25 million. That is to say, Mr. Trump was forced to pay back many of the defrauded students who had enrolled in this fraudulent institution, Trump University, by Eric Schneiderman, the attorney general of the state of New York, which raises the point that we should also not ignore, which is that state attorney generals like Mr. Schneiderman in New York and Javier Becerra in the state of California are going to play a major role in holding Mr. Trump to account, particularly if he does what is expected, which is to fire the special counsel, Robert Mueller. And a footnote needs to be mentioned when speaking about Betsy DeVos, and that's a reference to her brother, Eric Prince of Blackwater fame, who now is trying to revive the old idea of Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North informing a kind of private CIA because of Mr. Trump's uh, apparent uh, antipathy towards the national security agencies, particularly the FBI, but to a certain degree, the CIA. And if this takes place, and apparently it's in motion, this will be one more step towards the F word, that is to say, a private security agency under the thumb of Donald J. Trump. One more thing on domestic issues is this. I have, because you mentioned the left and the African-American community. Well, it, it started during the election race when I was definitely more in this camp of Bernie Sanders than Hillary Clinton. And that was very different from most of the black elected leadership here in 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 Washington, which, you know, were in the Hillary Clinton camp. But I guess this year, watching people like, uh, you know, people who many of my friends like love and respect, you know, people like Maxine Waters get up and trumpet this Russia line, this anti-Russia line, this Putin line, basically carrying on the mantle for Hillary Clinton as blaming Russia, blaming Putin for her loss, saying that they manipulated our election, that they that somehow Trump colluded with them. And that's a really a word that we, I really have to unpack, <laughs> you know, colluded with them in some way to, 
you know, win the election. And, and there's so many pieces to that that are moving and too complex for us to unpack in our short conversation. But it's really made me have a tremendous disconnect from that when I believe that the more serious issues that we're talking about aren't given that type of platform, aren't, aren't given that type of emphasis. And not only education, what's happening to the environment, uh, which tremendously impacts our community, but also the voter suppression issue that people who have actually gone back and studied the election have concluded that voter suppression had more to do with the election outcome than any possible intervention from Russia or Putin or someone connected with them or some lobbyist connected to them that's under investigation. And so all this energy and time and treasure is going into this Mueller investigation, which I'm not knocking. I mean, many people believe it should go on. If there's anything there, let it be found. But when you have everything else being pulled out from underneath our feet, you know, our, our voting rights, our environment, uh, our, our right to just clean water, uh, our children's public education, all those things being pulled out from under our, our feet. I, that's what, that's what really bothers me about this continuing emphasis on just the Mueller investigation. Well, the only friendly amendment I would make is to point not only to the elected black leadership, but to the democratic party leadership as a whole with the black leadership, basically singing from their choir book. In the current issue of the London Review of Books, there's a long piece by Jackson Lears of Rutgers University analyzing this question of Russia and Trump. And it reminds me of past Democratic Party failures. I recall at the Democratic Party convention in 2004 when John Kerry, the nominee, came onto the audience saluting and saying reporting for duty. He was trying to rebut the militarism of the GOP by suggesting that the Democrats could be as militaristic as the Republicans. And of course, he, like Hillary Rodham Clinton, voted for that debacle, that fiasco in Iraq. And needless to say, it led to his electoral defeat because it's very difficult to outflank the GOP on the right. And in some ways, by raising the specter of Moscow in the 2016 defeat of Hillary Rodham Clinton, once again, it seems that the Democrats have not learned the lesson of John Kerry. They're trying to outflank the Republicans by bringing up Moscow and the excesses of the Red Scare, rather than, as you suggested, looking at the question of voter suppression, which I think is particularly timely in light of the Alabama senatorial elections when it's apparent that it was a turnout from black voters that pulled the Democratic Party's chestnuts from the fire and prevented an accused pedophile, Roy Moore, from ascending to the U.S. Senate. Sadly enough, uh, these simple and elementary lessons are not being learned as we speak. And one of the takeaways from that recent flap involving the intellectuals Cornell West and ta Coates that I took away was... It was revealing because what it exposed is this left-leaning tilt in black intellectual circles generally, because basically that was a debate amongst various factions of liberalism and the left. And you don't get a sense of that, certainly from the mainstream press, which acts like a left does not exist. Witness your recent invocation of the ignoring of Jill Stein and the Green Party. 
But even in left-wing publications, which I will not name, you don't get an idea of the left-leaning tilt in black intellectual circles. And that, to me, is also quite telling. And I think one of the reasons why you don't get that kind of ventilation, even in left-leaning journals, is because many of these left-leaning journals are not diverse at the top. That is to say, they don't have an adequate representation in the editorial boards and amongst their editors of black intellectuals. And if they were to reveal and expose the left-leaning tilt of the black community as a whole, they would be forced to diversify instead of following the centuries-long pattern in North America of seeking to make and remake what used to be called the white man's country. We're kind of running out of time, and I know you wanted to perhaps elaborate more on the international front. We've discussed many times this year about the increased, I guess, opposition to U.S. imperialism. And right now, the protests, the resistance in Honduras, I I suppose, is the most current example of that. Well, not only Honduras, but I noticed that at the meeting in Istanbul a few days ago, protesting the Trump administration decision to recognize Jerusalem as the eternal capital of Israel, the meeting was called by the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. But interestingly enough, at that high-level meeting was Nicolas Maduro of Venezuela, uh, who was expressing solidarity with the Palestinians and flew all the way to Istanbul to do so. And I think that that bespeaks the fact that Venezuela is still under the gun. I should also mention that another development that your listeners should be paying close attention to in coming months is what A-Times, Asia Times, A-Times.com is referred to as the impending demise of the petrodollar and the rise of the petro yuan. The lifeblood of global economies, which is oil, which is petroleum, historically has been traded in dollars, but that may be going by the boards along with the hegemony of U.S. imperialism as there will be an attempt to trade oil and petroleum in the yuan, the renminbi, the Chinese currency, and in which case this petrol yuan can then be converted to gold in either Hong Kong or Shanghai. This is a potential game changer. Recall that both Muammar Gaddafi and Saddam Hussein got into hot water when they started talking about trading their nation's petroleum in a currency other than the dollar that led directly to the demise of both of these men. And so this apparent rise of the petrol yuan is something your listeners should pay very close attention to. Okay, well, uh, before we close, do you have any other thoughts uh, about anything that we've discussed, either domestically or on in the international sphere? Well, I think when historians look back at this period, I think one of the things they'll find striking is the fact that in Libya, North Africa, you had this very alarming portrait painted of Africans being traded into slavery and how this was a direct result of the 2011 overthrow of Gaddafi by the Obama administration, supported in no small measure by many black voters 
whose roots were in slavery, I think that that's one of the many ironies and paradoxes that historians of the future will focus upon. And I would also say that it's not too late to protest that outrage. I noticed that in New York in particular, there have been protests at the Libyan mission to the United Nations, for example, and it would be highly appropriate to replicate those protests at the Libyan embassy in Washington, D.C. On that note, we've run out of time. Uh, I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst and frequent contributor across the Pacifica Network, author, activist, Gerald Horn. And his most recent books are The Rise and Fall of the Associated Negro Press, Claude Barnett's Pan-African News and the Jim Crow Paradox, and Storming the Heavens, African Americans and the Early Fight for the Right to Fly. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you. And that will do it for today's show and for 2017 for On the Ground. I want to thank Gerald Horn and Janine Jackson for their contribution today and for this entire year. Thanks to all those who have contributed to this labor of love, including Chantel James, Lydia Curtis, Michelle Roberts, Michael Byfield, Floyd DJ Wahid Aaron, and our new team member, Afra Abdullah. A big airwaves hug and thanks to all the stations airing on the ground, including our home station, WPFW Washington, D.C., WRFG Atlanta, KCEI Northern New Mexico, KBOO Portland, WXIR Rochester, New York, WLLP Palinville, New York, KODX Seattle. WPPM, also known as Philly Cam in my hometown, Philadelphia. WXOJ, Florence, Massachusetts. WKRK, Fairbanks, Alaska. And listeners in Corvallis, Oregon, New York, New York, Montgomery, Alabama, Workforce Rising Radio, and all listeners online wherever you are. Thank you for listening and helping us to raise all of our voices. The music we played this hour included Rain Dance by Nana Vasconcelos and the Bush Dancers and War in the Mind by Lauren Hill. We also played some sound bites from our shows this year, and you can hear all of our past shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On the Ground Show and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Esther Averam. See you in the sure-to-be-great 018. Thank you for tuning in and keep raising your voice. Peace.